0: Players gather
1: to cast powerful blue-green spells, some of the newest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Icefang Waddle, Ura, Titan of Nature's Wrath, Oko, Thief of Crowns, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy in the search for eternal glory.
0: The Eternal Glory podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashar on YouTube, Thuribon University, and theepicstorm.com.
2: the eternal glory podcast episode 29 bad cards good decks i'm phil gallagher joined by bryant cook and bryant coble i would normally ask how are you all doing tonight but uh i'm gonna ask a different question instead on a scale of one to ten how much love are you feeling from the community
1: right now
0: it's about a dark depths phil 20 out of 20
1: yeah, I'm at like a 9.7 myself. I'm impressed Bryant broke the scale with the 20, but I'm feeling a lot of love. Uh, Pretty close to I was expecting here. like an 11
2: out of 10, but uh, we've got we've gone full Marillage. I, I really do appreciate that. So Bryant, tell us, uh, or well, I guess tell our viewers why why we're feeling so much love and support right now.
0: Well, during our last episode, we mentioned how we were a little bit light on the funds and the legacy community really took care of us. As the person that set up the PayPal account, I got to read all of the beautiful messages that came in and it really meant a lot to both me and I don't know why I said both me, but to me and both Brian and Phil, we really appreciate everyone taking care of us.
2: And there were also some really great um, and interesting comments on Reddit that supported us as well. Um, and it really validated us and, and made us feel, feel like needed and wanted. And just thank you, really heartfelt thank you to everyone in the community.
0: So there's a long list of names here. Uh Phil, why don't you read them?
2: All right. Apologies in advance to our donors whom I don't know and I get your name wrong. Here we go. Evan Gravenzo, Benjamin Salzberg, James Whitehouse, Taurin Skinner McGinnis, Ryan De Crane, Daniel Becker, Timothy Coletti, Thomas Hep, Albert Lindblom, Dick Fisher. Jaming? Question mark. Sorry on that one. Bill Flicking, Timothy Everett, Jim Mingus, Kwok Wu, Rudy Summers, Ron guiro Schiller, Simon Bullhof, Evan Flynn, Zach Vanderzee, Kenneth Dulson, Jero Seipel, Grant Root. Ru- sorry, Grant Wu, and Henrik korkuts That's the longest list I think we've ever had on this podcast. Thank you all so much for your support. The episodes will be flowing for quite some time, and uh, we've done some pretty cool show notes today, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. All right, so life updates. We're going to try something slightly different this week. Um, Some people have asked us to get to the magic stuff a little bit quicker, so what we're going to do is we're going to do our personal life stuff first, And then we're going to transition into magic stuff that's not directly related to the episode topic. And then we're going to go directly into the episode. So, Brian, let's start with you. What's going on in real
0: life? So, it was a little bit awkward. Every year I do an annual domain and fundraising for TheEpicStrom.com. And it's always July 31st. I didn't realize when we were releasing our episode it was the same day. And it was a little bit awkward. I was like, oh, four years in a row I've done this date. And now we did it for the podcast. I'm going to have to wait a week. Uh, and I also feel like it's weird asking for donations for both things right around the same time. But the Serum community really stepped up and made sure that the Epic Storm domain costs were covered. So thank you to everyone that donated. It means a lot to me personally, on top of everything for the Eternal Glory podcast. Uh, we hit our goal, so thank you very much. Uh, in the previous years, I've always given our site writers gifts with that extra money around the holidays. So the first year was custom pint glasses with the Extreme logo on them and a six pack of local beer from Empire. Can't talk Empire <laughs> Empire <laughs> Brewery. Sorry about that. Uh, then the last year it was uh, Scott Fisher signed Burning Wish prints. They were the first ever prints ever made. And uh, another year, I think actually that was two years ago, then last year was the Epic Storm pullovers. So I have to figure out what to get the site writers this year. If you have any good ideas, uh, feel free to message me on epicstorm.com and help me figure out something cool to get them because I love showing the team my appreciation for what they do.
1: You should send them the Epic Storm branded Tendrils of Agony, which are like metal pipes that they can stick in people and suck out their life force. It could be handy, like in a tight spot. It's like a caffeine boost. What, a, I don't what know.
2: about like a toilet seat cover? Great shot.
1: Mm, with Tendrils of ideas. Agony on it? You just open up your toilet seat and on top of the lid like on the inside is the art of tendrils and then the toilet is full of the tendrils. Or it all will, right, it it will be analogy. shortly.
0: <laughs> you think my next shit, okay? We <laughs> can <laughs> move on.
1: Alright, alright. We can move on.
2: That was a That was a strong bit. All right, Brian, how about you? Uh,
1: I uh, have finally have something new to report. The past uh, five months of how are you doing have just been I've been sitting in my house watching TV, but uh, I went back to work officially today. Uh, Day one was uh, still virtual for most of us. It was just a lot of trainings and housekeeping sort of stuff. But tomorrow, I am. Physically in the building for the first time. I have to wake up at 5.15 in the morning, which is about six hours earlier than I've woken up in the past five months. So that's going to be a harsh adjustment. And uh, we'll see how all that goes. Um, there, In addition to the COVID stuff, my organization also did like a pretty large restructure over the summer and a lot of policies and uh, staffing ratios and various things are are pretty different, so everyone is uh, kind of heightened on the edge. Like the the normal back to school excitement buzz isn't there; it's like dread instead. So I'm gonna do my best to power through that and do my job, serve the kids <laughs> as long as we stay open. But that that's all I have on my mind right now.
2: Um, I started watching Westworld. I know I'm, like, multiple years late in that regard, and I think Brian wants to yell at me for that.
0: <laughs> I'm so excited, Phil. It's one of my favorite shows. It's my favorite active television show. By far, not even close. Like, Westworld season one is fucking brilliant. Season two is eh, and then season three went back to being insane.
1: Oh, did it? Because I've watched one and three-quarter seasons of Westworld. <laughs> Should I get back in?
0: So the problem with season two was that the writers and directors of the show, they read Reddit. and like episode two, someone just like posted the entire season's plan. So they went back and like reshot and changed everything to make it more convoluted. And I think it just ruined the show. instead of caring about one person figuring it out, they should have just won with the plan.
2: Yeah, I'm about three episodes into season two right now, and I keep thinking like, Am I misunderstanding something or is this like a vast continuity and plot error? It's like, okay, that's glad to know that they did a bunch of rewriting and that's why things feel a little weird. Because I, I adored season one. Uh, for for the listeners out there, I don't really like shows with real people most of the time, but uh, this one this one is a gem, it's a real treat. Um, in other life stuff, there's been like weird mini disasters all around me recently. There was a literal dumpster fire outside of my house, as in the dumpster got hot and caught fire. Like, fire trucks came and everything. Like, I was getting ready to stream, and I looked outside, and I'm like, is that smoke? And my dumpster was on fire. And then there was an earthquake. So, this week's been cool.
0: Normally that smells just your donation <laughs> but decalus. In-
1: yeah, that's fair. Wow so the the dumpster was it just hot from the sun and the contents of the dumpster caught on fire yes
2: and this is the second time that that has happened
1: (laughs) those things don't happen north of the Mason Dixon just floating that out there yeah we've had a scorcher like my lawn is half dead but nothing just spontaneously combusted in my yard
2: yeah it was just like at I don't know five o'clock at night or something like that just it caught fire I, I, I don't know.
0: So for a weekly grilling thing before we get to Brian, because I don't want him to. Uh, no, I guess we didn't do it. Inspired by Brian's grill fire story, I cleaned out my grill, which is something I've been dreading to do. And it took me all of three minutes to scrape all the like excess food out. So I will not be creating any fires. Yeah,
1: it's not bad. Once you get in there, once you realize it's important and go do it, it's actually pretty easy. All right. Awesome.
2: Um, so let's go ahead and delve into uh, sort of our MTG Quick hits, is what I dubbed this section. Um, so I'm going to start. So speaking of like the piles that I play on stream, I was recently playing Karn Oko Enchantress on stream. It's exactly as glorious as you imagine it is. Uh, turns out like playing those cards early off of just like enchantment based mana accelerators is pretty darn good. And I ran into this super cool interaction that I did not realize So, I had the Abyss in play, and my opponent had a couple of creatures, and I had Karn, and I played Mycosynth Lattice. And my opponent conceded. About a minute passes, and then someone in chat goes, Hey, wait a second. Did you actually just kill yourself by playing Mycosynth Lattice? And I was like, but why? It's like, well, because Mycosynth Lattice turns everything into artifacts, right? And the Abyss doesn't kill artifacts, it's non-artifact creatures. So your opponent conceded to a mycosynth lattice karn lock, where they actually just had two creatures on board that could have attacked and killed the Karn.
1: Yeah, that's pretty bad.
2: So there's your fringe interaction of the week, folks. Just caught me and like 70 viewers off guard, and then one person in the chat found it out. Like, that was a that was a cool one.
1: I think that's the second best Mycosynth Lattice. Oops, everything's an artifact story. The best one is from the modern Pro Tour, where uh, where Karn was premiered, basically. His big big day in this, the spotlight, where somebody jammed a lattice, and the opponent attacked with a construct token, and the opponent was just like, uh, like okay, no blocks. And they were like, you're dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just an XX where X is permanence in play. Yeah, so the old got-yourself-with-mycosynth-lattice.
2: <laughs> like, I, I've played a lot of Karn, and every once in a while I keep coming across these like really weird things that Mycosynth-lattice does. Um, one of my other favorites from about a month ago was tapping an ancient tomb for double colorless to cast Petty Theft from Brazen Borrower and like bounce either the Karn or Mycosynth-lattice and kill me. That was real good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I forgot that Microsynth Lattice had that whole line of text, and there are a number of videos on my YouTube channel of me frustrating because I have to click an extra time. Like, when you make the mana to cast a spell, you then have to decide what color that mana's going to be, even though you tap the right number of lands anyway. And I'm just like, why is this happening? Moto is bugging. Ah, this is affecting my time. I'm going to time out. But later I learned <laughs> that's why.
2: All right. Do either of you have some uh, some good MTG stuff from recently?
0: Well, somewhat recently, about last week, I tweeted something about force negation that uh, you know was trending for a little bit, and a lot of people decided to tell me about why my tweet was wrong, saying that it's not force negation that's wrong with Legacy, uh, and that it's Dreadhorde Arcanist or Oko, the things fueling force negation. And the main part of the tweet was saying that. Force of Negation has created a consistency within the Blue Shells where I'm not saying that I want Force of Negation banned, but the Blue Shells have become so consistent where I don't know if that, honestly, if your intention is to win, you probably should just be playing a Delver deck with six forces and Delvers and Like That deck is just so consistently powerful where it gives you the best odds of winning and you're doing yourself a disservice by not playing them. And a lot of people decided to tell me that I was wrong and blah, blah, blah. And then tried to explain a bunch of like fairly obvious things to me, but it's Twitter. You shouldn't have to write an entire article on Twitter. Like you should, people should assume some base level things and that didn't happen. So I felt like I needed to say something about this because they were telling me it's the card advantage that's fueling Force negation. But like when they banned Survival of the Fittest, they weren't like looking at the creatures. They banned the card that was helping fuel. And I understand that Force negation. Like, if you want to ban Force negation, you should ban Force of Will. Uh, but that's not how Legacy works. Like, there's sacred cards like Brainstorm and Force of Will. And I don't think they'll ever ban Force negation for what it's worth. I'm just questioning how consistent the blue decks get to be now. Because, like, even against Chalice decks, like the decks that Phil plays, there's 60% to have a Force for your turn one Chalice now. Like, that's changes the format a lot.
2: And that's in addition to all of the other answers for those sorts of things that have been printed in the last couple of years, uh, such as Brazen Borrower and Oko as well. Um, we could probably go off and do a whole episode on this sort of topic. Uh, so I think yeah, I'm that's just going let like, uh, that one go there. Uh, but
1: I, I think it's a really Brian interesting thread. Brian was biting his tongue
0: the entire time I was talking.
1: Yep, I'm just going to let Brian have his soapbox and say nothing about the obvious flaws in his argument. <laughs> So that maybe maybe come back in two weeks where we talk about why force negation is absolutely not bannable or a problem.
0: Well, I didn't I, I don't think it should be banned for what it's worth.
1: I said come back in two weeks.
0: So uh then the pioneer bans happened where they banned my breach deck, but the new one is so much fun. You just get to cast omniscience and then enter the infinite? Like it's insane. And you'd think that like, well, you need 14 mana to put omniscience in a play. I thought it would be a steep cost, but like when you're forking your untap effects, it's really not. So that's kind of cool. And uh, I qualified for the Vintage Showcase, which is kind of sweet, playing Old Trusty Paradoxical Outcome. I was having, I played a couple challenges the weekend before, and I was struggling against Doomsday, so I changed my deck a little bit. I cut the main deck Hercules, I added in a Mystical Tutor, I added in a third top to help out the Mox Opals, and it really made the deck a lot faster because you were able to get rid of your tops a lot more easily. Like you didn't mind catching in a top for a card. And you were just like casting Tinker consistently on turn two a lot more often, which was pretty sweet.
1: Nice. I also played a number uh quite a bit of vintage. Uh, I did the Gen Con online for all four days that it was happening. That was a Thursday through Sunday. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, there was a Vintage and Legacy qualifier each day, and then the format championships were on Sunday. Uh, All of the the qualifiers were four rounds, and if you went 3-1 or better, you qualify for the championship. And I qualified for both championships on day one, and then I took a day off. I played, but I was being silly. I played non-blue decks. like I I played Hogak in Vintage, and... uh, Muxus stompy goblins in Legacy. And I went 2-2 those days. And then I came back with a, uh, a 4-0 with ninjas on fr- on Saturday. And a, a 3-1 with uh, a Rug Xerox in Vintage. And then I I top 16 the Vintage playoff with uh, trusty old P.O. And I, I bricked hard out of the Legacy one with with ninjas. But that was a really sweet. It was a ton of fun to just like play... Legacy and Vintage for four straight days, and I got my prizes last night. Uh, I, I tweeted this last night, and it it got a lot of shares. You may have heard this story already, but I I ended up with 146 prize tickets at the end of this week, and a prize ticket is worth one pack on the prize wall, and I took all of my prizes in Magic Online packs, because like that's the easiest way to just cash out, just 146 times three, get all the ticks. And I got my email last night and it had 146 different codes for individual booster packs that I had to copy and paste into the Magic Online client one at a time. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that was completely in line with how this event was structured throughout. Like it was very clear that the Gen Con staff were working hard to make this happen. And Magic Online slash Wizards, whoever the buck stops with, was just like, ugh, I guess. <laughs> so there were a number of things where, like, the Gen Con staff, they set up a Discord. They were really engaging. They were like, yeah, we're going to have, like, the, your results in, like, it, five minutes from now. And then it's, like, four and a half hours later, they're like, yeah, we haven't heard from WotC. Like, we can't actually give you your prize tickets until they tell us the results of the tournament. <laughs> and then, like... Clearly, when they redeemed the prize wall to Watsi, Watsi just took like, okay, so uh, 4,000 M21 packs were redeemed. Here's 4,000 codes. Go ahead, divide them up however you're gonna. <laughs> it was just such a, a crap show. And I'm, I'm sure that it was trickling downstream. The Gen Con staff were great.
0: That sounds delightful.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was a ton of fun with some just a couple minor like weirdo things that happened along the way. But I'm glad I'm it happened. That,
0: uh, I'm hoping that Eternal Weekend happens online. I think that would be pretty cool.
1: I think that it will. I know that uh, Nick Koss has been working on that. Uh, it, it. I think it will just be a matter of if WotC buys in and lets him do it. But Ma- Magic Online has become intertwined with the last two years of Eternal Weekend anyway. Because they were... Or maybe it was just last year. Last year, the... Top eight of Eternal Weekend got various amounts of Magic Online product with their top eight. Like the really, yeah the 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 winner of like our our reigning Vintage and Legacy champs, they got one of everything. Like a, a complete set of every set that's been released was part of the first prize, which is like nuts. Because if you if you think about like like that's so much better than one of everything because it's like. Tarmogwif's been printed three or four times. That's most of a set of Tarmogwif. Chalice of the Void, same thing. Like, just one of every... A full set of every set. Just beamed right into your Moto account. And I got, like, 36 packs of whatever the Master set was at the time. Like, it was good for, like, 200 ticks or something. Like, it it was pretty nice for a top eight.
0: But there's still no Blackboarder Merchant Scroll?
1: Uh, Afraid not. (laughs) Isn't the foil Blackboarder?
0: It is, but then you're using a foil on Magic Online.
1: They're frequently cheaper.
2: <laughs> Can't you shut off the animation and then they're basically the same?
1: Yeah, that's what I do. Like they, they just have like sort of a glint to them, but nothing is moving or super obvious. And the only time it bothers me is if like the foil is cheaper when I buy my first two copies, and then I need a third copy later, and now the regular one is cheaper. And then when I lay out my deck for like the Twitter picture... It shows, like, uh, two Ren and Six and one Ren and Six next to it, which is a, a minor uh, tweak out for me, but ultimately fine.
0: I do the same thing, Brian.
1: Yep. Not not cool, but I, I made a decision in my life that I will just always take the cheapest path on Magic Online. I will not pay a single cent more for, like, the good art or whatever. So that... It's it's extremely utilitarian. My my real life collection has enough nice things in it that I can I can live that way. I, I spent
2: about a dollar getting nice planes for Magic Online. That was a uh, that was about the only style thing I did.
1: Okay, I lied. Basics matter to me, and uh, I recently had to switch up my basics due to one of the various Magic controversies. Like I had the I was on Gurus, and now I'm on uh, Unhinged. So I, I did recently spend about $12 to change my basics over. It was a tough tough sell, but we did it.
0: All right, Phil, why don't you tell us about these bad cards and what they have to do with good decks?
2: Okay, um, so section one here I've dubbed the Strength of Synergy. All right, so there's some cards that are played in Legacy purely because of their individual strengths and power levels. Think about your things like Swords to Plowshares, Lightning Bolt, Ponder, Brainstorm. These cards are just like the best at doing what they're doing. If you're in those colors, you probably should have a reason to not be playing these things.
0: I was just going to say, Lightning Bolt has a pretty good synergy with my basic mountain, fell. So I don't know if I, uh, I'm i buying this yet. Well, it
2: doesn't have a good synergy with Chalice of the Void, which also has good synergy with mountain, but better synergy with Ancient Tomb, but we're we're trying to... Keep this episode focused. You understand, of course.
1: Anyway. Damn, I think Phil just told me to shut up. (laughs) That's what I heard, and I agree.
2: Anyway, so then there are some cards that are strong, but they're stronger in a specific shell. So here I'm thinking about things like Dark Confidant. Dark Confidant is a pretty good magic card, right? but if you're playing it in your deck with Emrakul and Grizzlebrand, it's a little more questionable than if you're playing it in your deck that has like a bunch of Moxen and one-drops and a whole bunch of lambs. Or similarly, something like Days is a perfectly fine magic card, but when you can really take advantage of the tempo swing that it presents, it's an even better magic card.
1: Yeah, I can tell you, back in the day, there was a Days Miracles deck. That was the flavor of the week for like one week, some some. Buddy, I think someone in Europe won a tournament with it, and then it was hot on the SCG Tour for exactly one week until everyone remembered that it's bad to days in your control deck. Like, the deck just played, like, four mentors, four tops, four days, and it was just trying to, it was trying to Delver while also maintain
0: Miracle stuff, and it just didn't work. Wilson Hunter is rolling over in his grave right now. For what it's worth, Phil, there used to be a vintage deck uh, around 2007, I believe, maybe even 2008, that ran uh, Darksteel Colossus with Dark Confidant.
2: I mean, for what it's worth, I played Tin Fins, and I played the man plan of four Dark Confidants and four uh, Monastery Mentors in the sideboard. And I just, like, no fear, played those bobs alongside Grizzlebrands and Emrakul. It was fine, except for that one time when it was not fine. Uh,
1: I... At the first Eternal Weekend, like, when it, after it split from Gen Con, and it was a standalone event for the first time, it was in Philly, in the Vintage main event, in the final round, I was playing for 7-2-1, or whatever, X-2-1, playing for top 16, and I was playing some fair deck, it had, like, a Young Pyromancer and Deathrite Shaman in it, and my opponent was way ahead with their control deck, and... Then they flipped Blightsteel Colossus to their Dark Confidant, and they went from 14 life to 2, two or 3 life, and then they died, and it was pretty sweet. So I, I've seen these things where they, you can be betrayed by your Confidant. Alright, so
2: Category 1, cards that are carried by their individual strength. Category 2, cards that are strong, but are stronger in certain homes. And then Category 3 is the ones that we really want to focus on today. And these are cards that are objectively weak, But in the proper home, they shine, and they become very, very powerful. There are some cards that when you look at them in a deck list, you go like, they're playing that in this legacy? When they could be playing, name card that was printed in the last two years. And we want to really focus on what makes some of those bad cards good today.
1: So can I start this section off with a confession? I... Saw The first time I saw the ninjas list, that's what we're about to talk about, this ninjas list, because this is exactly, this is the inspiration for this topic, pretty much. I saw Retrofitter Foundry as a four of in this otherwise Delver-looking shell, and I was like, what the hell does that do? Like, why is that there? Do games go that long? (laughs) Like, what, is there nothing better you can do with your mana than this? And then I realized that changeling outcast and ornithopter two other bad cards that are in this deck are just thopters on the front (laughs) like this is a one man away to turn your shitty enabler into a 4-4 beater and like it just turns three bad cards in your deck into three good cards (laughs)
2: Hey, Brian, taking one step back, will you just explain what mode of retrofitter foundry you're talking about? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are still pretty unfamiliar oh, with that Oh, yeah,
1: card. you're right. I broke my own rule of this as a uh, an auditory medium, and I didn't tell you what the card does because it's not in front of you. All right, it's a one-mana artifact. It You can pay three colorless to untap it. You can pay two colorless and tap it to make a 1-1 servo. You can pay one colorless, tap it, and sacrifice a Servo to make a 1-1 Thopter. And you can tap it and sacrifice a Thopter to make a 4-4 Construct. So, on the surface, like, I, like I've like i played this card in, like, decks that could make infinite mana. I, I had, like, a Zerta deck that played two of this, just as an option. But in, in this, like, fair-looking mid-range bug shell, it just didn't make any sense to my lizard brain. But then... <laughs> but then... The final mode, tap, sacathopter, make a 4-4, interacts with these shitters you have to play to turn on your ninjas, and everything became clear to me.
0: I mean, that's not even the only synergy within the ninjas deck, though. Um, for those of you that don't know, Yuriko is a ninja that the deck is mostly based around, because as uh, it is like the ninja lord, so to speak, because it triggers with your other ninjas, such as Changeling Outcast and Phil, I don't know the name of all these cards. What's the 4-mana one?
1: Ingenious Infiltrator.
0: That one. All right, so that one draws a card whenever another ninja deals damage, so it triggers with Changeling Outcast and Yuriko. Yuriko reads, reveal the top card of your deck. Your opponent takes damage equal to its converted mana cost. That card goes to your hand. It is not a draw trigger. And so Yuriko triggers with those other two. And when I was first facing this deck, I was like, okay, this seems kind of cute. I see what's going on here. And then I got hit by a dead drop for nine damage. And I was like, that's pretty sweet. Uh, so that's another example of synergy between this deck. Like the ninja stack is almost like a synergy based Delver shell. Like Brian said, it has a lot of like the Delver look and feel, but the cards aren't all powerful on their own. But when you pair them together, you create a much more interesting shell that can be better at times because... If you have the infiltrator with your in player you're drawing four cards your opponent's taking at the bare minimum of six. So that's kinda cool. Or I'm sorry, that would be three, right?
1: I don't know. I'll shut up now. Let's, let's let the let's let Jarvis figure out the math on that one. Sounds good. <laughs> no one else is capable of it.
2: So let's uh,
1: Yeah. I'm I'm going. What, what, where are you going, Phil? Are you moving uh, on?
2: I was gonna or... talk about like our baseline stats of these creatures.
1: Okay, yeah, go ahead. Uh,
2: so, like, let's look at the stats of the creatures that are the enablers in these decks. Shilling Outcast is a 1-1 for one mana. Can't block, can't be blocked. Um, that's a creature that I might not even play in Limited most of the time.
1: You don't. You really don't. <laughs> Unless you're Slivers.
2: Ornithopter is a 0-2 flyer for zero mana, and while that's cool and all... Um, zero twos don't close games very fast, or rather, they don't close games at all. If we compare this to the power level of other cards at this cost in Legacy, like when you're playing something for one, you could have Brainstorm, Ponder, Swords to Plowshares, Lightning Bolt, Delver, you know, Mother of Runes, Ether Goblin Lackey. Like this, it, it it's not on the same power level as other one drops in in Legacy. It's just not. But Even though it's below the clearly acceptable power level on its own, when it enables Yuriko, when it enables Ingenious Infiltrator, when it becomes something that you can turn into an Elk with Oko, when it turns into a 4-4 with Retrofitter Foundry, all of a sudden, these creatures that are kind of shitty on the surface, and you might question why they're in the deck, they actually become quite good. When you start thinking about, like, mana rates, if your opponent spends one mana to answer your free ornithopter like score right like if, if you've gotten a fatal push or a lightning bolt or a source of plowshares on your ornithopter that means something else gets to live later and these creatures actually start to look pretty darn good
0: ornithopter was in one of the best standard decks of all time fell so i think it, that might just be a good card on its own you know if, you, if you've you ever put a cranial painting on it you understand Hold on, which one of the cards yeah. is good there <laughs>
1: Yeah, Ornithopter is just the poster child for a bad card that frequently makes its way into good decks. Like, it it exists to create synergy. Like, there's no reason to put that card in your deck if you're not going to synergize something with it.
2: Yeah, and even every once in a while we see something crazy like, uh, like a Cheerios deck that, like, plays Glimpse of Nature, and then, like, Ornithopter starts to look pretty sweet there, too.
0: Hell yeah. So one thing about the ninjas deck is there are lists that where they try to get away from playing changeling outcast and ornithopter, and I've seen lists with snapcaster mage and even baleful strix. And when I face these lists, the first thing that I notice is that they're a lot slower. You lose retrofitter foundry, which takes away the fast draws. So then you know that your opponent's just playing a slower Delver shell, and they're playing more of a grindy engine, which might be good if you're trying to beat something like snow. Or maybe even like a four-color control deck that isn't Snow or Miracles. Uh, Speaking of Miracles, it won the showcase this weekend. Uh, But I don't know if those lists are actually any better than the ones playing Ornithopter or Changeling Outcast. Like, I know on the surface you feel like you're a smarter wizard playing Snapcaster Mage or baleful Strix because you're playing with good cards. But good cards aren't always what's right. And I have a lot of experience with playing bad cards in my average decks.
2: I think when you take the deck that is meant to be built around synergy and you start, like, picking little bits of synergy away from it, you just end up creating a deck that's more awkward. I think the Bug Ninja's deck is actually good because it leans so hard into synergy from different directions. It's a deck where it's not just like A and B are a combo. It's A and B are a combo, and B and C are a combo, and C and A are a combo, and D and B are a combo, and there's all these little interlocking parts that interact in slightly different ways that all work together for one coherent game plan. I, I think that's what makes the deck strong. You don't have that many, like, wrong piece
0: hands. Well, Phil, there has to be other decks out there that use Synergy, right? Like, it can't just be ninjas?
2: I, I don't know. Do you do you have any, any experience with any of these sorts of decks that are built around Synergy? Yeah.
0: Have you
1: maintained a website for four years about such a deck by any chance well, five years but oh, i wanted to talk
0: about miracles uh so after top was banned there was this like pretty bad card they've seen play for quite some time not even uh, got some of them signed
1: let me tell you about this card <laughs> the, this card it's like ponder but it can target a player and you don't draw a card till later i'm talking about portent so if you're not familiar with portent it is what i just described it's uh Look at the... It's a one blue sorcery. Look at the top three cards of target player's deck. You may have them shuffle the... Put them back in any order. You may have them shuffle. Draw a card at the beginning of the next turn's upkeep. Which was a perfectly playable legacy card before Ponder was printed. Like, this was actually just the next best thing after Brainstorm. We didn't have Ponder and Preordained back in the, the olden times. Like, Portent has a, a pedigree in legacy. But there. It's long since obsoleted, but the reason you would put this card in your deck over the first Preordain, for example, like, I played two Portents zero Preordains for a while in Miracles, and the reason is drawing a card later, when combined with the Miracle mechanic, means that I can Portent myself on my turn. Like, I can, like, play Jace, Brainstorm, Portent me, pass the turn, flip Terminus in your upkeep, and clear the board. So, it's a it, it was a clever way to work around the lack of the instant speed draw ability that Top was providing for the deck. You had to work a little harder, but it did its job.
0: So why I think that this is an important example is it's a synergy within the Miracles deck, but I wouldn't necessarily say that Miracles is a synergy-based deck. You can have smaller synergies within your deck without needing to go all-in with something like Ninjas. Yeah, so,
1: that, that I like counterbalance is not a good card on its own like uh, we're going back into like the top era uh, which is a dead era which isn't super relevant but compare counterbalance in current miracle shells which is optional cuttable like some people sideboard them some people don't play them at all Uh, some people still try to make it work even though I think it's crazy but that was just like the lights out for the longest time because of the synergy with sensei's top and sensei's top is like fine like, you get to look at... You get some card selection, but, like, without shuffle effects, without uh, counterbalance, without the miracle ability, Sensei's Divining Top is only fine. Like, that, it, it does a lot of cool things, but uh, really, like, having that card in your limited deck wouldn't be super exciting. So, uh, that, that there's a lot of small synergies going on there. Yeah.
2: So, it used to be that, like, if you got counterbalance locked... You were locked for the rest of the game, and now in 2020, if someone plays Counterbalance, like there, there is a real game to be had. Your spells can very likely still resolve every once in a while. It's not a, it's not quite the vice grip that it used to be.
0: Yeah, the only real need question. you resolve one Phil Yeah, exactly. In the of summer, oh, Vail summer <laughs> shuts off Counterbalance, and then you just murder them. I've done it multiple times recently.
1: See, I was thinking it from. That works from the Epic Storm perspective. From the mid-range control deck perspective, you only need to resolve one. Any one will do. And the question you're asking the Counterbalance player is, how many three drops do you have in your deck? Yep. Because I'm, I'm going to jam Teferi, I'm going to jam Oko, I'm going to jam Monastery Mentor, I'm going to jam Uro. Any one of them is going to win the game. How long can you float that three drop on top of your deck? So, th- that's, like, that, that's an example of a card just eating shit when its partner got Left the format.
0: Well, another part of that is if we rewind back to Counterbalance's heyday, the curve of legacy was a lot lower. Like one and two was pretty much where decks capped off outside of like Force of Will or like your Jace the Mind Sculptor sort of cards. In 2019, 2020 cards, they tend to be a little bit more expensive, but the effects are a lot more dramatic when you're looking at things like Narset, Karn, Uro, Oko all of the Degenerate cards, they just win the game on their own, but they're also just a tiny bit more expensive. And that's another thing that makes Counterbalance worse is like decks actually have a Mana Curve now, where previously, I don't know if that was the case.
1: Yeah. My, the, my exit in the uh, Gen Con Legacy Championship, the the person who eliminated me in our game three, they went cloud post, cloud post, cloud post, Glimmer post, Ulamog. The, the, they just made four land drops and cast Ulamog. And I was like, Okay, Uh, there goes a couple of my permanents. Oko, elk your Ulamog. Then they went Caracas, bounce my elk, Ulamog. (laughs) So let me tell you about magic that's being played these days compared to when Counterbalance was good. Counterbalance doesn't do shit against anything that I just described. (laughs) And neither does Oko or anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very different world out there.
0: Yeah, but in 2020, you could be playing... Arkham's Astrolabe with Back to Basics in your five killer control deck.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a different kind of thing that's happening. All right,
0: enough, All right. enough so reflecting we talk on the more past. about synergies. All right, so there's this other uh, sort of deck that I might have been known to play once or twice, where you can play a lot of bag cards that are situationally good, and sometimes the more you lean in, the more you can see your deck improve uh, based on these cards. And for me, it's Chrome Mox. Back during the Miracles heyday, I tried getting away with only playing two and sort of being more like ad nauseum tendrils where my deck had a better late game. But what I found was when I leaned more heavily into Chromox and when I went up to four, I was winning more games because I was winning games before my opponent got counterbalance top into play. And sometimes that's what you need. And it's tough because sometimes people will tell you otherwise when, like, you might say, Hmm, my win rate's higher when I play four copies of this card. But you'll discuss it with your peers. And they're like, yeah, well, that card sucks. You shouldn't play it. And sometimes you just have to trust your gut a little bit. And then keep on looking at the data. Because, trust me, I read a lot of what people say online about like deck construction things like that. And I'm in the Storm Discord. And like I still read MTG The Source every once in a while. they'll be like, but every time I draw a Chrome Mox, I want to puke. Well, you can run Ant and have a 35% win percentage. Or you can play the Epic Storm. And get up to 60 something percent and accept that Chromox isn't always the best top deck. But when you reveal it to ad nauseum, you want to pump fist. So, like there's gives and takes. And sometimes you just have to accept a card's role for what it is rather than disliking it for what it's not.
1: Yeah, I had a, a game in the Gen Con when I played the, the Muxus Stompy where my opponent had gained like tenuous uh, parity against my early start. And like any, I had so many draws, like Moxus Ringleader, Matron, like any of these, the goblin payoffs to just bust the game open. And I drew Chrome Mox, and then I drew Chrome Mox, and then my opponent Blind Cabal Therapied me and named Chrome Mox. <laughs> because, because, I mean, they, they very smartly deduced that the goblin deck didn't play a land or a creature for the last two turns, what could be in their hand. And then they cast Jace, plus on me apologized in the chat and I drew Chromemox. And like that felt pretty bad. But I also cast like a number of turn three and four Moxes during that event. So Chrome Mox giveth and taketh away. Yeah, that's that's just the
2: best way to describe it. Like I've I've lived a lot of the red prison life and like when you draw these Chrome Mox in and these spirit guides end game it's like uh this is a little rough but then like you get so many Whims off of the the tempo that you gain by having this mana acceleration. That the trade off is certainly worth it.
0: Phil, do you know how many times I've had turn one Karn cast against me in the last two weeks? It's a lot, and I fucking hate it. And every single time that it happens to me, I laugh a little bit inside because I think to people that are like uh-huh, Chromox sucks. Meanwhile, my opponent went Lotus Petal Chromox Karn, and I'm sitting there hating myself. So. I don't know.
2: Yeah, and we've seen a lot of like very good fast artifact decks within I don't know, the last 2 or 3 years. Like Lotus Power, Lotus Petal and friends and Chrome Moxon have been acceler- accelerating out all sorts of dumb stuff from like the Zerda stuff to the Urza stuff to the Karn stuff um, to the like white Eldrazi style prison stuff. Like the the card is is very good and you you can't necessarily shove it into everything. Like, if you tell me you want to shove a Chrome Mox or 4 into Delver, I'd probably look at you uh, with a raised eyebrow. But I'd still be willing to listen to your madman talk.
0: I believe a lot of this started to happen when Mox Opal started being experimented with. It happened around the same time for, like, the Epic Storm Bomberman and a couple of prison decks where decks started trying out Mox Opal to pair with some of their faster stuff and that's when you started seeing the more explosive um, sometimes even combo-y prison decks start to emerge.
1: Yeah, that uh, like a card like Chromox uh, that you have to look at your your macro plan which is to go fast. Like there are lots of ways to get ahead by one mana in magic, like and most decks like miracles I would put rampant growth in my miracles deck before I play Chrome Mox because it, it's not a negative one for zero. <laughs> you know, like Chromox, you have to be spewing something hard and fast to get the payoff of the card disadvantage that you're causing yourself, and you're diluting your deck with all these shitty top decks. Like you, that has to be in a deck that's trying to get things done.
0: Why do you have to use the word shitty, Brian? Huh?
1: is what it is.
2: <laughs> all right. So, kind of returning back to the the ninja side of the the discussion for a minute. Part of what was making ninjas strong is that it it uses these various pieces very well together in all sorts of different ways. And because it has these multiple synergistic angles that are all slightly different, it creates something that's strong. But there are a lot of legacy decks especially on the uh, the lower end of the tier spectrum, that try to use Synergy and don't really do enough, and the deck ends up being really weak. I play a lot of these. There are a lot of these, like, A plus B combo decks, where A is sketchy and B is sketchy, and A and B don't interact with the rest of the deck at all, and the rest of the deck is just held together by reasonable cards. And you just end up playing a worse version of some other deck because you haven't actually created enough synergy to make it worth playing, you know, the quote unquote bad cards in your deck.
0: Well, I think that's a, uh, I don't want to say a problem, but a deck building problem within Legacy is so often I'll see an A plus B deck. And the first thought I have to myself is, why is this better than show and tell? and there's a certain ceiling in legacy where your a plus b combo deck has to be at least as good as x where x is another deck in the format and i've watched some of your streams phil um you're a brave soul that's what i'll have to say about that but when it comes to deck building you have to be doing something better than something else in order for it to be worthwhile and Sometimes you just have to get those synergies to work well together enough to do it. Like, I've reinvented the Epic Storm at least three times in the last ten years. Like, I'm still not playing Goldlands and Silences anymore. For a while, the Epic Storm was a four Empty the Warrens Cabal Therapy deck based on synergy. And now it's a Wishclaw Talisman Artifact deck. Um, so, sometimes you just have to find your own niche.
2: So, do, do you all remember the older version of Ninja's... Before like ingenious infiltrator, where they were playing a bunch of like cute big things that you could happen to rip with Yuriko,
1: like the eleven mana time walk with Delve. Uh,
2: is it 11, is it eleven? I saw that eleven.
1: Maybe Temp- it's nine. I Tempor- Oh it's no, a I'm thinking of the
2: miracle one, temporal mastery.
0: Temporal mastery, seven mana.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm just gonna look it scratch, up. Are
0: scratch? It costs twelve.
1: No, dude, you're way off. Uh, this was in Khan's block. Temporal, it's temporal something. Temporal extortion? No. Nope. D- distortion? You guys can keep talking. I- I'm gonna look, try to find it. Too
2: late. All right. Anyway, the old ninjas deck used to play a bunch of like big BS that it could rip with Yuriko, and if that happened, it was just like gross, disgusting. Like pump your fist in the air, you got 'em. And so there used to be a bunch of things in there like Gurmag Angler, Temporal Mastery. Uh, sometimes people would, like, go real deep and they'd put, like, Vile Smasher the Fierce into this Yuriko deck as well to, like, really try to mize with these uh, expensive cards. And it just was janky, because so often you just ended up with a bad card in your hand, and it, like, wasn't in the right spot, it wasn't in the right zone, you didn't have it with your Synergy Enabler because you didn't have enough of them. And the deck ends up just being awkward. And now the ninja's deck has just kind of cut most of the I was going to say most of the crap but like most of the extraneous stuff in order to just make a really tight core.
1: Temporal Trespass. <laughs> That's the card. Ah. It's an 11 an eleven mana time walk with Delve. It's blue, 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 eight, Delve, take an extra turn. I have had that card flipped off Yuriko at me before. Continue.
0: Yeah. So I think another one of these decks where when you look at it, you go, well, the whole has to be greater than the sum of its parts. And it had a very strong showing this past weekend at the Legacy Showcase, which would be Hogak. I know we're we're supposed to be talking about ninjas or something, but I think when you look at a deck like Hogak, it's actually a better synergy based deck than something like ninjas, because the entire deck is literally just all synergy other than the lands. When you look at a card like Stitcher Supplier, that's not exactly a very strong legacy card either. I'd probably rather play that than Changeling Outcast personally. But when you pair with Hogak, Bridge from Below, Vengevine, all these other cards, the Gak deck, I mean that's what it is. It's very powerful, but none of the cards are actually that good. Yeah,
2: that might even be a better example, honestly. Like how many cards that are in the Hogak deck actually see play elsewhere? It's not that many.
0: Like I was looking at the list that recently did well. it's running Putridip and believe it or not, uh Judgment All Star, Hapless Researcher. Hey, yeah,
2: that card has that card has seen plenty of legacy love.
0: Maybe in two thousand nine Blue Black Reanimator.
2: I, I remember watching SCG Tour or whatever they were called at that time matches and seeing that on camera.
0: The Little Wizard did work. But uh the deck's very similar to Dredge. Like when you look at Dredge outside of Lion's Eye Diamond, that deck doesn't really have any crossover.
1: Yeah, I, I think that like applying this to Hogak is like just the closer you are to a combo deck, the more of these weirdo cards you're going to have. Like, I-, I think we were insp- so inspired by Retrofitter Foundry because it's in an otherwise fair mid range blue deck. Like, obviously, like, Storm's going to have some weirdo cards in it that wouldn't be in Miracles. And, like, Show and Tell is going to play a card that Dredge isn't going to play. And Dredge is going to have be full of weirdo cards. Hogak's going to be full of weirdo cards. And uh, they all play roles. And it's just really really fascinating when somebody finds a way to wiggle a combo like it, And it's not even like uh world Gorge or dragon where you're a control deck with an actual combo finish. It, this is like a purely synergy driven value combo. Uh, just this one card engine that turns your whole deck on. And uh, th- that's just really brilliant uh, to see that in such a fair deck.
2: I also think that like ninjas is kind of a cool, I don't I don't know that I really want to call it a breakout deck, because it's been slowly building for a little while now. But it's super cool to see this sort of deck having success in current legacy. Like, it's it's something that isn't playing a bunch of the like current offenders of the, the format that people really tend to dislike, like Astrolabe and and that sort of stuff. Like, it's got like an OKO in there, but it's uh it's really just like a little Little treat oko. It's not an oko centric deck. I don't know. I I like this yeah. deck a lot.
1: Yeah, my ninjas league is my most watched YouTube video by a lot. Uh, in my recent posts, like the the people love it. The the YouTube algorithm loves it. I guess uh, sharing it to new people. But yeah, people just keep clicking because they see ninjas that they, they love it. Yeah, I'm streaming with it tomorrow. So
0: there's night. a screenshot that was shared on Twitter where somebody tweeted out the top I was like top 4 or 5 decks in legacy and the first one was Rogdelver second one was ninjas third one was goblins and the fourth one was elves all the percentages for the decks were cropped off and it was within the last 14 days i think goldfish is actually a little bit of uh i don't know how i want to choose my words here but like not exactly telling the truth for uh actual like m- legacy metagame shares anymore especially depending on how you filter it because like the Saturday morning challenges are like forty people, sometimes even less but also you publish uh preliminary results which are barely firing now, and then you have challenge results, something like ninja's that has like five appearances could have the same person piloting it in three different events, and when we get published three times and all of a sudden your deck's in second place. Because when you look at the actual percentages on that screenshot, it was like 26 results from Rug Delver, seven from Ninjas, five from Goblins, four from Elves, and then everything else in the deck was three over the last 14 days. And it looks a little bit uh, misrepresenting, but like then people see the screenshot and they're like, oh, well, I want to play Ninjas now. Which is fine, because Ninjas is a, a perfectly acceptable deck in 2020. But I think sometimes people get in their mind a little bit too strongly about how good these decks are based on some of these screenshots or the goldfish data in general.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, anyone who works with statistics for a living knows that the, or has studied them in any way you, the first thing you learn is how to do them. The second thing you learn is how to lie with them. And then the third thing you learn is how to spot lies with statistics. Like it, it's very easy to present numbers which are supposed to be impartial arbiters of what is true as in, in misleading ways without lying. Like it, it there's tons of ways to do it. Uh, that that's how like political structures work. Like it, it, it is done all the time. And like, like you said, if, if goldfish just like, if the algorithm just farms three lists from the same person over three different days, like, and now their deck is in second place, that can happen. So it, you need a little bit of research. I wouldn't just open up the Goldfish page and pretend to be an expert on the Legacy metagame.
2: Uh, in current Legacy, I I trust my gut more than I trust the data. That's like very much not been the case historically. But right now I feel like I, I, I kind of know where Legacy is at. I know what I'm seeing. And like sometimes I look at the data that I'm seeing for things and my image of legacy and what I'm seeing based on the data don't mesh. And when I see that disconnect, I tend to err on the side of, like, trusting my play experience
1: more. Yeah. uh, I've, I've held this position for well over a decade, and it's that you are a maniac if you try to metagame legacy. Like, you should know what the best decks are, you should have a plan for them, but if you're, like, trying to cover everything, or if, like, your decision comes down to, like, I can gain 2% against blue, but I lose 3% against combo or whatever, like, with a sideboard slot. Just play what you want to play, because everyone else is going to do the same thing. And it, it like, I, I've i spent so many hours of my life agonizing over that 15th sideboard slot in Delver, and it, it barely matters. Like, you want to run a good deck, but, like, honestly, you can, like, pour over mtg top eight and goldfish and like all of the leagues and be like oh my god delver is so popular i should play a a blue elemental blast and then you just get paired against a stompy six times (laughs) like it is what it is it's legacy so i will say
0: this i generally agree with you brian but this past weekend in the showcase the people that chose to play hogak were brilliant because when I look at my personal data structure, I faced it, I believe the number was six times since the banning of Laris. When you look at the, like, long-term goldfish data, because you can filter up to 30 and 45 days, Hogak was nowhere to be found. And then this weekend, like, five or six people chose to play it out of the blue, and it just crushed everyone playing rugdolver Like, everyone's known the entire time that Hogak beats rugdolver But this weekend, people were afraid of playing combo because of rugdolver and more people played Runkdover, and then Gak, Gak, just came out of nowhere and killed everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are, like, broad-stroke metagame calls you can make, like, bold decisions. Like, it's always been said that this truism is as old as the format. It's like, Dredge is the best when Dredge is the worst. And it's like, when everyone knows, like, everyone is ready for Dredge, therefore we can drop our hate, now it's time. Like, this is the week. And... Uh, these people pick their spot and it it's like kind of a smallish field what like 40 people you said and uh, it's was this the showcase is the that
0: showcase was like 200
1: okay so uh, and like the the magic online metagame is like try hard by nature because there's no gathering it's only magic like the you, the only reason to play magic online really is like for a, like a little bit of fun but mostly enough farm tickets and maybe that's controversial, but I, I get I get no personal joy out of playing Magic online compared to playing paper magic. And like nobody's gonna show up with just some whack and noodle deck. Like <laughs> not in a series. Unless it's about. Phil.
2: Like even right. I, like crazy man that I am, like when it comes to like actually like playing in a legacy challenge or a showcase or something, like I played Death and Taxes, I played Red Prison. I don't know that I've ever submitted a deck other than those two for a serious tournament.
1: Right. Like, you can YOLO a league and, like, you're out $10, but you have a, a sweet video or a sweet stream if you're a content creator, or you tried something fun that was worth 10 bucks. if you're not. But, like, if you make it to the Legacy Showcase, you're gonna be playing Rugged Elver or something with a plan to beat it, basically. And and that's exactly the, the spot where you just shove in Hogak and hope it works but there was like a good chance that like maybe the pairings don't work out and even though rug delver is uh, 40% of the field you play against like miracles twice you just get your shit Terminist and then you're out of the tournament and rug delver is in the top 8 so uh, there's just uh, like you have to have a really solid meta call you have to go deep into it like these people played hogak they didn't like put some Abrupt Decays in their deck, you know? Like, that's not their plan for Rug Delver. They are on Hogak. <laughs> they threw the whole 75 in the trash and brought Hogak. Like, they, they they committed to a thing, and they they were right this time, and they got the
0: pairings they wanted. So what kind of deck building would you call adding in some Abrupt Decays, for example, over, like, a card like Massacre? What kind of deck building is that?
1: I would call that Roll Filling.
2: Oh. Well, seeing as I'm Phil, I guess I'll start that section. All right. Yep,
1: fill it up, Earl. So,
2: um, when we're talking about roll-filling and deck-building, we're talking about what specific cards are there for. And Abrupt Decay is a classic example of a card that does everything. If you think of the problems in Legacy right now, Abrupt Decay answers most of them. It is just a generic workhorse card. But then there are more specific, more narrow, more powerful cards. Uh, like Take something like Massacre. If you are bringing a Massacre to the table you know what you are looking to kill. You are looking to kill a lot of shitty white creatures at the same time, and you are looking to crush a poor man's soul. Like, that's what you're trying to do with that card.
0: Failure had a comment.
2: I sure did. So did did Thalia, so did Aethersworn Canonist, and Mother of Runes, and basically most of the creatures that I play. All right. So when you're playing with one of these cards, like Massacre, that's specific it's very powerful, and when you play it, it probably wins you the game, or at least has a very high impact on a game. Whereas when you play an Abrupt Decay, it, it's just kind of a spell, right? It's a good spell, but a, like one Abrupt Decay probably does not make or break most games, at, at least early on. But one Massacre, like you killed that poor player. They're, they're done. Pack them up. Go to game three.
0: Phil, would you believe that there was an event in my life where I ran two massacres?
2: I, I, I would. That's the kind of person you are. And then again, like I'm the kind of person who like started throwing Chalice and D&T and all sorts of other decks where it didn't belong, so like, we, we both have done terrible things to each other, but we can still be here and talk as friends, so it's fine at the end of the day. Anyway. When you play these niche cards that have low flexibility, they have high specificity, right? So, for example, let's say that you bring something like Boil to a tournament. Like, when you are registering, like, Boil or Tsunami, you know what your life is about, you know what you're trying to beat, you know what matchups those cards are for, but they're not very flexible, right? Right. So when you're thinking about your your deck building, you need to think like: Do I need a flexible card? Do I need a specific card? What are these cards trying to do? What sort of roles are they trying to fill? So, like Brian, for example, you played a lot of like blue fair decks. Like, how how do you decide what cards you're you're slotting in at a at a given time? Do you want to like talk about something like that?
1: Yeah, sure. Basically, I just after our long rant about metagaming, like this is the kind of tuning that knowing what the best deck is about will help you. like if I have two slots left over in my my main deck I have 58 cards registered in whatever monastery mentor blue shell've I've put together this week, Like, I'll look at the top decks and it's like it, what what are people? putting it to play like is chalice of the void popular right now i might want council's judgment in that slot are people trying to interact on the stack or playing tons of blue mirrors like this might be a teferi or a narset kind of thing uh is it rug delver put give me two supreme verdicts just put them in like that that's the kind of uh role playing i'm interested in and it can get weird it's like if you need to answer a variety of things at a certain speed like uh, Merit Lage. Generally, you can't answer that at sorcery speed and still plan to win the game. So maybe you need uh, Unexpectedly Absent is a card that I've registered. I know Bryant has made fun of that card before on this podcast, but uh, for two mana, you can remove a permanent from play, and if you have extra mana, mana around, you can do more with it. Like if if the that's that's like the Abrupt Decay versus Massacre situation, like. Supreme Verdict is not going to stop Merrillage, but it's going to stop Delver in its tracks. Uh, Unexpectedly Absent will tuck that Tarmogoyf, and it'll tuck that Merrillage, but it'll leave the uh, the Dreadhorde Arcanist and the Delver in play too, unfortunately. So that's just, what kind of role are you trying to fill with your slots?
2: I've played a lot of things, um, like Celestial Purge in the sideboard, where like... I love that card. It, on the surface, it's like, man, why is that in your deck? And then you go, like, well, this week I need to be concerned about, like, Bob and Liliana of the Veil vale and Gurmag Angler and Merritt Lodge all at the same time. And it just, like,
1: makes it and and a- and, Yeah, and, and Blood Moon Hordering and Sulphur nice. Vortex and Dread Horde. Yeah, like, the, uh, when, back when, uh, Legacy, uh, I think probably like a year and a half ago at a the winter, uh, SCG Con, Harlan uh, Fear and I were both working on various blue-white shells, like Stoneforge Mystic decks. Uh, I, I guess this was around GP Niagara, actually. So we're going back a little bit. And we were both working hard on like uh, blue-white shells with Stoneforge Mystic, and I was just on Celestial Purge. And we had talked about it a little bit. We went back and forth. He was like, I don't know. I'm like, I think it's good. And then he tried it once, and he, he was just on it. Until Legacy shifted again. Like, that was just one of those cards that in that moment where, like, you you had to answer, like, Merit Lage and Blood Moon on the reg. That's exactly what you want.
2: So this is something that Bryant and I have both brought up a few times, but we both have boxes of, like, the Plan C cards where, like, they're not the cards that are usually good, but, like, every once in a while you need to reach back for the tech. And, like, it's so good to have those reserves of cards. Like, I've I've registered Brian has gotten up in order to get his own reserve box, I think.
0: (laughs) Speaking of what Phil is talking about, I dug back last year pretty deep, and I brought back Crash. At the time, chalice decks were really popping up everywhere, and Crash seemed like the perfect answer. It wasn't a sorcery for Burning Wish, but it allowed me to answer a chalice on turn one while not slowing me down. In a point in time where I felt like Legacy had sped up quite a bit. And cards like Echoing Truth and Abrupt Decay were too slow. So running Chain of Vapor and Crash allowed me to get around these first turn chalices a little bit more often.
1: Uh, I also have such a, a thing. I When Phil started talking, I ran behind me and grabbed it. I'm holding it up for the camera now. This is the Elves Binder. I have just a binder full of foil cards that could conceivably be in Elves. Just flipping through this binder, run the Last Troll... Elder Scale Worm, Crozen Grip, Loaming Shaman, Vengevine, uh, Yeva Nature's Herald, Creeping Corrosion, Azuri Renegade Leader, Rens Run Packmaster, uh, Fairy Macabre, Marsh Casualties. Like, th- these are the sort of things that I have that could conceivably be put into an Elves deck.
0: I remember Azuri and Elves. Like, it was a big deal at the time.
1: Do you remember Packmaster and Elves? That oh, was the golden era. Oh my God. Shardless Bug was so popular. Uh, this was the uh, the eternal extravaganza that I chopped the finals of. It was a, a 40 duels tournament. I chopped the finals for 30 duels. And I remember when I knew I was going to do well in the tournament, it was like round four of eight. And I was playing against Shardless Bug and I cast Greens and Zenith for four. And they were like, what are you gonna get with that? And I was like, "You're not gonna like it." And then <laughs> I I slammed the packmaster. It tucked an elvish visionary, and then they just died to it. Like just pooped out elves. It has death touch. It's a five five. It costs four. Like there's nothing they could do to touch it. Like that was that was the golden age. I love. I that missed card. that. Age. I thought for Legacy. sure you
0: were going to list the white changeling that elves used to play, and then you mirror did. entity. Yeah.
1: Well, that's just completely obsolete, unfortunately, though Mortar Pod is still in this binder from when Mirror Entity was the kill. Uh, I- I'm sure I've told this story before, but uh, there was a time I was playing Elves versus Sneak and Show. It was against Brad Nelson, and we had this crazy back and forth game. I had like a Caracas to slow him down. He had like a Pyroclasm to brick me, and we got into this like scrappy nickel and dime game. And on the last turn, he tapped his ancient tomb from three life to cast show and tell, and I put in Mortar pod. and pinged him for the death. So, Mortarpod has killed Brad Nelson in Legacy. Let it be known.
2: I miss that era of Legacy. Like, that was the era of, like, sideboarding weird shit that absolutely destroyed people. Like,
0: Manriki Gusari,
2: Wiltleaf Leage was another great one from that era. Like, oh man, Liliana's everywhere. Uh, Liliana of the Veil at that time. Like, Lily plus Wiltleaf Leage. Oh god, everything is awful.
0: So I think there's part of what people like to discuss about that, and that's power creep. But I think, realistically, another thing that happened is Legacy became a more competitive format due to the SCG Tour. Because it used to be like, you would get one grand prix a year, and people would be like, "I don't know what was good in standard last year." Stoneforge Mystic, okay, so let's get her Batterskull. How do you beat Batterskull? Manriki sorry. But then SCG picked up Legacy, and the format evolved pretty quickly after that. And you saw a lot of these like weird strategies sort of just fall by the wayside. Like you didn't really see people playing like uh, Mono Green Cloudpost anymore for a very long time, or just like the random stuff you would see at smaller events a lot of that sort of just went away. And as the format kept on moving, you'd see more and more Delver shells and miracles and things like that. And less of the fun stuff you used to see. I
2: think part of that is just the nature of how card printings have changed. Um, maybe from like RTR forward, like we started getting much more flexible threats and answers. We we got things like abrupt decay and council's judgment and rest in peace where they they just end up being a lot more flexible and good across the board, so there's less of a need to play some of the the niche narrow things than there used to be. I don't know, maybe that's not entirely true, but that probably at least partially plays into it.
1: Yeah, uh, and and power creep is non-zero. Like uh, that's the nature of eternal formats. Uh, Modern is hitting like a kind of legacy size uh, like obviously it'll never catch up because that's not how linear time works but like the where the size modern is now is probably close to the size legacy was when i started and like when cards get printed they trickle off into the eternal formats that's just how it works that's the point so uh something like mirror entity and elves just getting completely obsoleted by the printing of crater behemoth like we get to cut a color, and we have like a better way to win the game. Like that, sure, deal. Like that—that's just how it works sometimes.
0: And now it's Allosaurus Rider. A card you can green the for one. Shepherd clown. I did it twice now. Honestly, I think the uh,
1: Al- the people who say Allosaurus Rider is probably close to ninety percent. Like every every YouTube thing I watch, everyone who tweets, every podcast I listen to. Allosaurus Rider, 90%. And when they mean Shepherd.
0: I am the
1: 90%. You are. <laughs> you're just crawling around in the mud.
2: <laughs> All right. So I mentioned Rest in Peace. Um, that brings me back to another point that I wanted to make. So when you're thinking about the tools that your 75 has access to, you need to think about what you need. Do you need the more specific card? Do you need the more flexible card? So, Graveyard Hate is a great option where you have things like Rest in Peace, Surgical Extraction, uh, Nihil Spellbomb, Graftigger's Cage, Fairy Macabre, and you get to think which one of these do I want to be playing? Do I want the generically hyper flexible Rest in Peace that's slow? Do I want Surgical that's fast and flexible? Do I want Fairy Macabre that is like a questionable legacy card at best but is really, really good against Red Black Reanimator? Like there's there's all sorts of different angles of attack that you can use for for something like graveyard hate.
0: Yes yep. and that and
1: and that works like the, the same way as I, I was talking about like your council's judgment, uh unexpectedly absent, supreme verdict slot. Like what, what do you need your deck to do? Like a deck that can win on turn four it just needs to survive turn three probably wants something like surgical extraction where it can just like clip the problem buy that breathing room get the job done uh, some something like miracles where the game's gonna go long your opponent's gonna have time to find the answer to whatever you play you need to shut it down they're gonna want to rest in peace and like then there's grafdigger's cage which also is splash damage against elves but it's worse against dredge because they can still fill the graveyard than when they do answer, your cage, things can get dicey quickly. Like, there's a lot of things to manage, and it's just uh, what does your deck need to be doing?
0: One of the better things you can do in these situations is don't just play one of these effects, play a few of them. So, if you can, maybe if you're playing something like Surgical Extraction, you could also instead or uh, complement it with something like Leyline of the Void, which seems crazy. But if you have two very different ways of combating, a specific thing that you're trying to do your opponent has a very difficult time of answering back so if they know that you have ley line they could board in um wear tear. i don't know maybe that's not the best example reverence silence reverence silence and then they can destroy your ley line but they're going to get crushed by that surgical extraction if they think that you only have ley line so if you hit them with the old one two there's probably no way of recovering
1: Yep. And I can tell you from a lot of experience, the best is when you hit them with both, where you just like have the turn to rest in peace, they do a bunch of crap and like spew a bunch of resources to answer it. And then they go for it and you surgical them. <laughs> like that's like, it, it looks like a dead card. But if you're playing a deck that's going to play a long game, the opponent's going to find the answer, you're going to need a second wave. So uh, just like pop, pop, shut them down.
2: So this is the sort of thing that uh, makes me really appreciate, like, the Stripo deck, the, the four-color punishing DAC deck. Like, that's a card that has so many different, like, slightly different situational cards that all do similar but slightly different things, and you never know which piece of interaction you're going to be facing in a specific game, and that makes it, like, even harder to play against those sorts of decks and adds to the, the unpredictability kind of its own advantage.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like the the check pile deck too, back when, at the end of Deathright Shaman's Reign, like that deck just had all of your favorite cards from four different colors in it in numbers between like one and three. <laughs> so it's just like, I can play around Pyroblast and Force Will, but I'm going to get got by Flusterstorm and you just could never win. But if I try to play around all of it, they're going to get me with their one-thought-sees. So it's just like that. That's there's a lot to be said about diversifying uh, what you're doing.
0: This section was originally titled "Role Filling" when you're deck building, and it's not exactly synergy, which was our first section. But uh, I have an example of Rite of Flame in the Epic Storm recently, as in like within the last month or so. I was trying a list without any Rite of Flames. I was just running eight Moxen because they were all synergy based cards, and I was just trying to turbo up my Ad Nauseums all the time. Which, in theory, in a vacuum, this is a good plan. Well, the problem with that is that decks don't always, like, work in this perfect vacuum where you're trying to do A, so you A into B, and then, you know, you get C. There's, like, role-filling cards, and Rite of Flame in the Epic Storm is that. Because when you don't have a card like Rite of Flame in your deck, you don't actually make that much mana. Like, you can mock Opal, you can Rite of Flame, but now you're down three cards and you made two mana. So if you ever get your effects like Dark Ritual or Lion's Eye Diamond Surgical, your deck can draw fifteen cards and make like six mana. Uh, so that's not always the best thing that you can be doing. And I think that there's a lot of like role-playing cards in some of these decks. Even Ninjas, for example, like uh, I'm, I've already forgotten the name of it. The 4-mana Ninja Infamous Ingenious Influ- Infiltrator. There we go. Like that's a role filler to me. Like it's not exactly your Yuriko that's bringing it home. It's not your Changeling Outcast. It's like that sort of the middle of the rogue card that sort of like it's secretly the core of the deck, even though it doesn't look like it. It could have been uh, Ninja of the Deep Hours, but this card is better in your deck. It fits that role a little bit better.
2: It's amazing how good it is to draw one additional card each turn in Legacy. Um, that's something we haven't like explicitly stated tonight, but like... When you have cards like Force of Negation and Force of Will in your deck that like cause you to two for one, you do need to uh, recoup some of that card advantage over time. Um, I played a league with a very questionable deck the other day that happened to include some ninjas in it. And let me tell you, when those things were protected and I was just getting to connect with them every turn, the game snowballs. And so though the card might look weak on paper... When it builds towards an engine and that engine get established, that oftentimes becomes unbeatable. And then your card that looks weak on the surface isn't weak anymore. Um, it's the thing getting you the trophy.
1: Yeah, when I'm drawing two cards per turn off my Changeling Outcast and my Ingenious Infiltrator, you can make fun of me all you want. <laughs> You're going to lose. <laughs> that, that's just magic. So,
2: Brian, I know you've also been playing around with uh, with some sharks recently. You want to say anything? Yeah, about Yeah, I love that? Me some
1: sharks. Yeah, so uh, my first pass at a shark still deck, I was just like four shark typhoons, four standstills, Hall of Heliods, generosity. What else do we do here? And then I, I quickly uh, adopted some ancient technology, which was Crucible of Worlds and Wasteland in my standstill deck, which and that's that's like almost as old as the format itself. Like when legacy was born from 1.5, I think people were already doing this or very close to it. So, uh, and I love uh, one or two wastelands in a control deck like that, that, that is, that just gets me, my engine started. So I, I didn't see anyone else doing this. Uh, and I just shoved two wastelands and a crucible of worlds into this deck. And I, I guess I should take a step back. My first thought was nobody else can get back their Hall of Heliod's Generosity if it gets wastelanded. And that's basically this deck's entire endgame. So what do I want to do about that? How can I get this back? And Crucible of Worlds came to mind. And I was like, okay, I can't just play Crucible in case my Hall gets wastelanded. That's insane. So I just put two wastelands of my own in. And now we have this sweet little package. And I have this sweet little package... But somebody uh, commented on one of my YouTube videos and asked about putting Mystic Sanctuary in this deck. And that's the the question there is, what role is that filling? So I've chosen to use these techie landslots for Wasteland. And because of the two Wastelands, the Hall of Heliod's Generosity and the Basic Plains, that's five non-island lands in my deck. So If I also put a Mystic Sanctuary in there, that could be up to six lands that don't produce blue when I need them to uh, in this deck. And with the Crucible endgame, you don't need something like Mystic Sanctuary to buy back your spells. Your lands are buying back your spells for you. So I could totally see a different build of this deck that doesn't have the Crucible, doesn't have the Wastelands, just plays two Mystic Sanctuaries and more Islands overall. And that would probably be a good deck too. But... I, I have chosen to fill that role one way and someone else might choose completely reasonably to fill it in a different way. And, and, and like that. I thought that was a pretty interesting discussion that came up in my YouTube comments.
2: As an aside to that, I think people get too greedy in their Flexland slots in Legacy in general. Um, I see a lot of Death and Taxes players um, do this in particular. So Death and Taxes is a mono-white deck that, like, really technically isn't playing enough white sources in the first place to cast all of its spells on curve.
1: <laughs> it's really not. Uh,
2: like, it's bad. I've, I've done the math behind it. It's, it's very sketchy. And then I see a lot of these Death and Taxes players doing things like, Ah, uh, I'm going to throw in, like, one Ghost Quarter and one Mishra's Factory into my list. And those are taking away slots that would have been additional white sources. Or they're doing things like, ah, I'm going to put a Flagstones in my list. I've got a one of Cataclysm in the board. I'll maybe get some value. And then you get like Blood moon and Wastelanded and Back to Basics. Like, basic planes are, are good. Your, your basic lands are, are so good. Um, you, you don't need to get cute with your flex slots. Like, a lot of times your lands really are contributing to your game plan in some way. And when you're trying to get too cute with adding utility into your deck, you sometimes end up hurting yourself greatly.
1: Yeah, you've all heard me play this song before, but basic lands are like functionally indestructible in a format that's all about gathering resources. (laughs) Like that's it. Like the, the basic land in Legacy is just an absolute treasure that not enough people use. And to support your point, the number of games that I've won against my opponent who goes like Rashad and Port Aether Vial, and I force it. And then they go like Wasteland, Rashad Port, Ghost Quarter, dead. <laughs> and then they just lose. Like that has happened enough times that like the number of planes in that deck is just already tenuous. So getting greedy, like Mystic Sanctuary is not a free card to put in your blue deck. It's just not, especially if you're playing basic planes. So uh, like you need to think about these things big picture when you're putting your deck together.
0: I'd like to circle back to something. You said you received this as a YouTube comment. I did. How be? How come you get constructive or at least like someone intelligent YouTube comments <laughs> where all I get is please upload more modern content because I've gotten two more of those this week. And I'm just going to start replying like fuck you on each and every one of them. <laughs> or maybe you could do more
1: modern content. Listen, give the people what they want. If
0: they want to watch modern, they can go watch Caleb Schur. Great guy. He's a terrific Storm player, loves playing Modern Storm. Go watch him. Leave me the fuck alone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I I honestly, I'm not sure, but I'm sure we could do a whole segment that I'm not trying to derail us today on about like community building. But when people comment on my YouTube videos, unless it's just complete like horse's ass stuff, I do respond like like any like any idea that is in the realm of sanity where, like, to me, obviously, like, I don't want Mystic Sanctuary in this deck. Like, I don't have the blue, the islands to support it. I don't need it for my plan, etc. Like, that makes sense to me. I built the deck. But I can see why someone might think that. And that's a good thing to engage with. And I've heard much worse ideas than that presented to me in those comments. And I always try to reply and say, like, oh, hey, good thought, but here's why. And I like to think that fostering that sort of back and forth pays off next month for my next video when someone has a thought and they want to share it. So there's there's that. That might be it. I'm probably less prickly than you in general.
0: (laughs) I think I'm gonna subscribe to your YouTube channel, ask you to make more storm content.
1: I, I would I would I honestly I don't know how I've survived this long without posting a Storm League. Because I, that that deck is in my range. I have played it in tournaments and people would probably like it. So I should probably just go ahead. I have it on Magic Online. Like I have the Epic Storm. I keep up with whatever your latest list is. And I always just have it ready. I just never actually do it.
0: Elves is just Green Storm.
1: I know. Uh, I I was going to play one. I was going to do one Elves Day during Gen Con. When, uh, Gen Con also gave everyone god accounts. Like if you signed up for the event, you just got moto unlocked 4x everything for the week it was pretty dope that's how i got to play mux's stompy but uh i'm gonna have to scrounge up some uh allosaurus shepherds to play elves that i was going to do that during gen con but then decided after getting uh crushed with my my brainstormless deck on friday i didn't want to do that again on saturday so i just won all my matches with ninjas instead but elves are coming
0: this is actually on topic and has to do with elves Recently, I've been playing a lot of Magic online. Uh, I've taken this week sort of off from legacy. I kind of got burned out grinding. But uh, the previous week, I was facing a lot of elves, and they all went back to running Nettle Sentinel. And I was like, that's a card I haven't seen in a while. Uh, more of the, in the combo-y sort of elf shells. I'd say in the last, like, six months, people are playing the Hello Newton-style elves that are running Elvish Reclaimers at a Nettle Sentinel. And it's just been coming back, and I'm wondering if, Elvish's shepherd has changed nice. the way that elves is structured a little bit, where people want to be a little bit more combo-y now rather than maybe being, you know, more of a mid-range deck with natural order.
1: For what it's worth, uh, I think in general that uh, the switch to like elvish reclaimer elves was a uh, just a, a oh, excuse me net decking problem. Like, uh, like I think that. Uh, Newton is just a genius with elves and could win doing anything, and that's what he was doing. And other people copied his list. And I I tried his list once, and it didn't make a lot of sense to me because I like again we're talking about role players. Like the the switch from Nettle Sentinel to Elvish Reclaimer is a fundamental change of the plan of that deck, and it changes everything. It cascades all of your decision trees from that point. Like from your turn from from your one drop, everything is different, and I struggled with that deck to try to figure out the right lines, and Newton is very smart. He knew what he was doing. He built the deck, so uh, good for him. But uh, I think that there was always a perfectly viable combo elves version. I just don't know if enough people were exploring elves, but Allosaurus Shepherd just making all your shit on makes makes it pretty easy to want to be a combo deck.
0: Well, I think that's a larger issue with legacy. If we're okay with talking about it in this episode, but I think people don't explore enough in legacy. We know.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, God. we know. I've said you, it like a million times. It just drives me nuts.
1: Yes. Every episode we, we talk about this. I don't think we oh, need shut to up now. rehash it completely, but yeah. So anyway, uh, talking about role fillers, since <laughs> that's what this section is, uh, I had an experience uh, in in vintage and Gen Con when I played Hogak. That Cabal Therapy sucks in that deck. Like uh, the the role that Cabal Therapy plays in graveyard decks traditionally, like uh, in Dredge, it's an all star. Uh, in uh, old Grixis Delver, like comboing off with your Young Pyromancer and Gataxian Probe, like those those decks were great at using Cabal Therapy, and you would think like. My deck doesn't make a lot of mana. It's a Bizarre Baghdad deck. Casting Disruptive Spells out of my graveyard for free is a good deal. But the way that Hogak is structured in Vintage is that you normally, like, you activate your Bazaar, you discard a Vengevine, you cast a Basking Rootwalla and a Hollow One. You now have Vengevine, Basking Rootwalla, Hollow One in play, and that's what you have to win with. That's it. Like, there's not a second wave. Uh, It's really hard when you're activating Bazaar Baghdad to get enough cards in your hand to create a second wave. That's just a function of how that card works. And it's not like Dredge where you can just tap it recklessly and fill your graveyard and things are going to be okay. It's just a totally different thing. So if you have three creatures that you've produced on turn one, it's their job to get the game over, and you sack one of them to Cabal Therapy? Like, that's not a good deal. And in Vintage... All the best cards are restricted. Like, you have no way to look at their hand. Are you just going to, like, fucking guess? Like, hope you don't have Ancestral Recall. Goodbye, Basking Rootwalla. Now my clock is two turns slower. Like, it, it was just such a bad card in a shell that seemed like it would love to have it.
0: Well, they are running Stitcher Supplier. I would just like to clarify that. But I agree with you. Like, every time the card is cast against me, I laugh a little bit. Because they're. I know for a fact they're either naming Force of All or Paradoxical like Outcome. And I don't care about either of those cards being in my hand with the way my deck is built. So it's just like kind of funny. But even in Legacy Hogak, I don't think Cabal Therapy is that good. And that's because of 2019 and 2020, where the power level of everything has shifted. And there's so many more cards now that are just playable cards that end the game. Where if you're a deck that's trying to name Force of well, are you going to name Force of well and then look sad when you name Force Negation? Or are you going to name Oko and then lose through their Uro or whatever it is? Uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah. I, I, Again, without creating too big of a tangent, uh, the recent year and a half of design has made discard really bad. Uh, having to play a lot of standard for testing for the pro toys and stuff. Uh, currently legal and standard are duress, thought erasure, agonizing remorse and thought distortion. And, that's a pretty busted discard suite. Like you can start discarding on turn one, one of those things uh provides card selection for you, one of them exiles, uh one of them exiles everything, and it all sucks. Like the there's like Saltite after the most recent round of bans is one of the best decks in standard, it's just full of good cards, but people have been slowly cutting like the Thought Erasures and the Agonizing Remorses, and they're just jamming Nissan uh Who Shakes the World and uro and hydroid crisis and like you, you just can't discard to stop a plan anymore because the, the card off the top of the deck is going to kill you by itself so that, it would make sense that that trickles back to legacy a bit too
0: where in legacy there's also veil vale of summer but on top of that if you're someone playing duress in legacy and let's say you're living in this magical christmas land where you don't get hit by veil vale of summer you're gonna look at force force blue card in your opponent's hand and you're like, "Great, if this was Vale summer, they'd at least have to force it.
1: yep, guaranteed.
2: there used to be a time in Legacy where discard was pretty good, where like there were a decent number of thought seasons like when when your opponent's primary win condition was like two jaces, one entreat the angels, if you like bring one of those to the graveyard, like you bought a lot of time by by taking one of those cards. And now decks are really threat dense compared to how they used to be. The the discard doesn't quite have the same oomph that it used to be.
1: It does not. And it, like discarding their URO. <laughs> Whoopsie doozies. Yeah, no no good there. Um and and like that was in the before Veil vale of Summer time also. Like, remember when Hymn de Turok was just in the best deck? Like Grix's control and checkpile before it, like that that deck was embraced by a lot of really smart, capable players because it provided so many options, and him to Turok was such a banger. And now they get to just counter it for free and replace the card. Like, yeah, yeah. So discard is a little bit worse. I don't know how we got there, but I was talking about Cabal Therapy not being great when you only have three creatures and you can't get them back. So him to Turok. <laughs> Alright, well, I'm also on the fuck him to Turok plan, like, as a blue player, like, it, it, when that hits, like, my land, it's just like, okay, I'm dead. <laughs> like, that. I, I agree. I, I used to have to bring in Flust, every Flusterstorm that I was playing against, like, creature decks. Like, I had to bring in Flusterstorm against Leovold decks because they would curve him into Leovold. It felt so bad. So, I, I, I'm glad that card is mostly in the bin, but Veil of Summer is a hell of a card. So since
2: we started talking about these 2019 cards, it's probably a good point to pivot into our last section, which is sort of a cost-benefit analysis of your quote-unquote bad cards. So you get to play cards like Uro, Oko, Karn, Narset, Teferi, Dreadward Arcanist, all these sorts of things in your deck if you want. So why shouldn't you? Why should you play these cards like Changeling Outcast? or Cabal Therapy, or Chrome Mox, you know, whatever it is that you're thinking about. Why should you not just, like, jam as many 2019, 2020 cards as you can into a deck and, and call it a day? Why should you get cute with your deck building? So you have to figure out, like, what what is my benefit? Where is the tipping point where playing this subpar card actually is better than just jamming a whole bunch of generically good cards into a deck?
0: Well, I would like to say, Phil, that I am very lucky and that my favorite cute card that probably was never good enough became a necessary thing when they printed Veil of Summer. That I'm just wizards looking out for me by making grief eternally playable. Respect Wizards.
2: I mean, and there there have been a lot of kind of cute and cheeky things that you've played. Um like you played Hope of Girapper for a long time, um and that was Yeah. Cool. Like
0: the uh, printing of uh, Fang Quaddle really made Hope of Gearper not as good anymore. And now with Sharknado or uh, Shark Typhoon, what it's actually called. I don't know if Hope is ever going to be playable again. It would take quite a bit for Hope to come back.
2: It's a shame. Bottom, bottom,
1: bottom, bottom.
2: That card did some real cool things with Lurrus too, but uh, let's not delve back into that.
0: So so, you have at this point highlighted between realism and Magic Christmas Land. And Hope is sort of that thing where like it was good a year ago, but realistically the card just probably doesn't have a home anymore because of the way that legacy's shifted in the last year. And I was only playing Hope for like a year before it became outclassed. Like it's life wasn't super long. In theory, you could still run Xanad Swarm, but are you going to attack as a bluff one turn and then get Ice fanged?
1: Yeah, that's embarrassing.
2: So it's it's sometimes really hard to tell where this line is, and like you just need to get in there and you need to play some games. So for example, I recently played an Ominous Seas Greater Good deck that was essentially like Snowco deck minus about seven cards to play Ominous Seas and Greater Good. And let me tell you, the Ominous Seas, they were pretty good. The Greater Goods, they were boarded out every single round and were just dead weight in my deck. And I should have just been playing Soko. Like, I was really excited about this idea. It was super cool. You know, you can theoretically draw your whole library and make a bunch of Krakens. But uh, in practice, I was just doing something that never happened. Between things getting countered and discarded and me having to interact with my opponents... Not a single time over the course of a league did I assemble Ominous seas and Greater Good together, despite playing four Ominous seas and three Greater Goods. So I played a league where I was just playing a worse version of a Tier 1 deck. And that was the reality of that situation. I didn't have enough synergy to make the juice worth the squeeze.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the first things I say to people when they come to me with an idea where they're like, what if we put, like, one training grounds in my blue white eldrazi deck so i can go infinite sometimes and it's like okay how often is that going to happen versus like you just wish you drew like something that attacks for damage like that that's the and like it's it's like the the situation or that's just an example but you know what i mean like i have a number of friends uh I had my, basically my entire college play group was like this, where they would just come up like, yo, I thought of this thing, this card and this card work together. I figured we could just shove it into like a bug standstill. It's like, but why? (laughs) What does it do? Why do we want that? And it just doesn't make any sense to do that. Uh, Which brings me. Brings us into our, our next thing here, which is, is the cute card a singleton or a four of? Like, is it the strategy or is it just like something you want to do? And how hard are you leaning into it? And is it optional or is it is it the plan? And this is like the the uh, infamous Richard Shea uh, Demir charm in Grix's Control, where Rich is willing to play any stupid one of as long as it's blue so he can pitch it to Force of Will. Like, he'll try anything, uh, just straight-faced, like, yeah, I think Jameer Charm has some applications, and if it's bad, I'll just pitch it to Force. So, like, that was probably better as just some legacy playable card in his deck, but he got away with it because it wasn't that big of a deal. Compare that to the Retrofitter Foundry, where I imagine this process was, I don't know who broke it, who found this, but, like, power to them, but I suspect they realized, like, hey, these are Thopters. I'm going to try like two of these. And then they were like, wow, that's good. I'll play three. And then they were like, oh my God, this is essential. I want four. And I, I anyone who's brewed a deck has had that moment where it's like, okay, uh, th- this is too cute. It doesn't do enough. It's out versus this is insane. And I need more of it. And, and that's the sort of decision that like you can turn magical Christmas land, like finding a one of when you need it at the right time is kind of Christmas land. Finding a four-of because you're going to need it often, that's realistic.
2: The one-ofs become better if you have things like tutors to make them viable. So Esper Vile, for example, has a bunch of recruiter of the guards and uh, things like soul herders to reuse them. So playing a bunch of super questionable singletons there for fringe scenarios is perhaps more justifiable than it is to, I don't know, put your one-of weird card into Maverick or something. Red Stompy. Yeah, into in Moon Stompy. You have that's, one six-mana
1: Chandra in your red Stompy yeah. deck. No,
2: you, you need like three of those. They're so good. Right. Although, admittedly, um, the five-mana one, Chandra, Heart of Fire, is now seeing a decent amount of play over six-mana
1: one. Yeah, I've seen that in lists.
2: I've mixed thoughts about that, but that's a, that's another episode.
1: Right. Yeah, like uh like the one Manriki gusari we were talking about earlier that goes in a stoneforge mystic deck you can go get it when you want it compare that to like one mirin crusader or something else that like could be in death and taxes it's like well what if my opponents a dark deck it's like uh until recruiter of the guard was printed that was just going to be in your deck sometimes you have no way to find it you don't even draw cards with death and taxes like uh, you got to think about what your rate of return on this card is going to be when you put it in the deck.
0: For what it's worth, uh, what we're discussing with is your card a one of or a four of? There was a solid month or two where when Wishclaw Talisman came out, Alex McKinley was convinced it was okay as a one of, and I was like, I don't think that card's good of. And Alex kept on testing it, and he's like, Brian, this card's been like been fine. I'm like, Alex, you're drunk. This card's not that good. And then, like, at three in the morning when I was just staring at my TES list after a bad losing streak, and it, like, clicked in my head, like, well, what if it wasn't a one of? What if it was a 4 of? And all of a sudden we could support Mox Opals, and everything started coming together. And when the TES chat read my madman rant of possible deck-building theory in the morning, I was like, I don't know if any of this is a good idea. We played some leagues and eventually, like, came together with a somewhat coherent list, but... Sometimes it's those out-of-the-box thoughts are like, well, what if it isn't your cute card? What if it actually is just a part of your core strategy? And most of the time it doesn't work out. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's your wish Wishclaw Talisman that ends up being better than Infernal Tutor, your staple that you've played for 10 years. But it requires reevaluating your cards and the way that you think about your deck.
2: And sometimes just changing the number on a card drastically changes how that card is played. Palace Jailer is a great example of that. So originally the tech was you run one Palace Jailer so that you can find it with Recruiter of the Guard and take over a game versus a deck like Miracles as the game goes long. And then the tech became you have a second because you want to have the safety net for if your opponent is able to take the crown. You want to be able to use your next tutor or like Flickerwisp Blink your Recruiter in order to take the crown back. And having that second palace jailer just like completely changes the, the dynamics of a game. The the same is true with a lot of other cards. Like the more copies you have of them, the more you can lean into that synergy. Like if you can be the monarch and then tutor for another palace jailer as a safety net, or like have another palace jailer to exile yet another creature on your opponent's board, like you start doing really gross things.
1: Yeah, that's the same as, I I keep mentioning Supreme Verdict as one of my role players that I play. Like, there was a time where I went from four Terminus down to three and one Supreme Verdict. Just to have a little more agency in when I could Wrath. And then I realized this card's a banger. And then I I just, like, had a, a second one in the sideboard to go with my three Terminus. And then I was on, like, two main with one Terminus main. And, like, just realizing that this was a better sweeper in certain environments and you you just really start to get your opponent who thinks you have to set up a terminus where it's like i can shove 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 until they brainstorm or ponder then i have to pump the brakes see if they flow to the terminus and then you just tap four mana and kill all their shit like that's that's like one of those paradigm shifts that like really changes how you get to play a game and changes how an opponent has to respond to you
2: a lot of times you get this like almost a rogue advantage by changing known quantities in your deck, right? So if you're doing something that's slight, slightly different from the norm, a, a great current example is there's the the Pokey Mokey deck that's uh, running around that is essentially like a mid-range deck that's running Stifle um, that like is, is apparently doing quite well, and it's one of those things where the opponent is not expecting to have to play around Stifle and they're just completely getting got by it
1: and we see that we see that in like a mini version anytime you play with or against delver it's like how many dazes are in this deck right now and after board like the, we see this dance and you're basically just taking that dance up to the big stage and like let's dance i i, I think that a person who plays dazeless delver would gain a lot of advantages in a lot of spots. They'd also sometimes just fucking lose because they can't daze their opponent's spell. But like, and if if decklist ever opened up, then they would be dead immediately. But like that—that's the sort of experiment that we're talking about here.
0: Stifle is one of those cards where it fits into the synergy aspect. Of where if you're a Dolver deck and you're playing Wasteland Stifle days, yeah, it fits into the synergy of your deck where you're not necessarily playing the. Um, Just better Singleton card deck. That said, the Stifle lists have come back a little bit in the last two weeks. But they're still not winning as much as just playing the Oko Haymaker Stifle lists. And Legacy is ultimately a format where you get to play what you want. Which is why you can play Rug Control with Stifles in it. But I think if there were larger events like Star Cities going on. Where you could actually play Legacy or maybe more events like the Format Championship you wouldn't see as many people messing around with cards like stifle on their deck. You'd see more, you know I know Anurag top aided with the Rug Stifle deck. But it's like one of those cards where it's almost it almost feels like a relic from the past and the people that play Stifle are nostalgic for the card rather than I think that this is a twenty twenty playable.
2: Yeah. Maybe maybe we'll we'll deep dive into this deck list if uh if it keeps putting up some results later. But I think it's uh we would go very wide with that topic very quickly. So, kind of focusing back in on the cost-benefit analysis thing here. Um, when you're playing these cards, a lot of times you want to be thinking about, like, is this card that I'm putting into my decklist that is, like, weak? Is this actually going to change my matchups? Like, what benefit am I getting out of this? Am I getting enough of a benefit that it's worth the the drawbacks? Do I have enough redundancy? Do I have enough tutors? Do I have enough synergy that like this card is actually going to be good? Or is it the sort of thing where it's like, ah, it was fine in game one, but I'm going to board it out in, you know, seven of my nine rounds in this tournament.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that, that that's definitely the the most important question to ask. Like, be honest with yourself. What is your motivation for trying this weirdo card? Like, are you getting some, like, brewer's high of, like, I'm doing something no one else is, even to my tournamental detriment? Or have I actually figured something out here? And if you answer that question that I just want to be different, that's fine. But you're not allowed to be mad later when your plan doesn't work. Just saying. Your friends don't want to hear it. So the, uh, if you're, if your goal is to win the most matches and you're looking at, like your ancient tombs and basic lands and you're like i could play soldier stompy like is that a better option than moon stompy and the answer is probably no almost certainly no and uh, like that's just like if you're the soldier stompy person cool stomp those soldiers live your best life but if you want to win the, the tournament you should play the better deck
0: I don't understand why you had to attack Phil to close out a podcast episode.
2: I mean, to be fair, we usually attack each other in some way or another to close out these episodes.
0: Yeah, I honestly,
1: uh, I I have a friend. uh, His name is Max. He top aided uh, Eternal Weekend with Splinter Twin uh, a number of years ago. And he is one of my most consistent supporters. When I was streaming, he was there almost every night. Uh, He comments on most of my YouTube videos now. He moved away years ago, but he still, like, is dedicated to following my content, and he rules. He is just deep on Soldier Stompy. Uh, He is—he works hard on that deck. He has it completely foiled out, and he knows—he was a really good Miracles player. I think he has some number of uh, Star City top 8s with Miracles. Like, uh, he he was a very good player of a very good deck, and then just yeeted it into the sun and became a Soldier Stompy player. And— he knows what he's doing, and power to him. <laughs> I'm certainly not shooting on people just for playing Soldier Stompy.
2: All right. Well, I hope we've given you some uh, some interesting things to think about in terms of deck building. Take it to heart, just like we've taken all of your wonderful feedback and love to heart. Oh, now we've brought it full circle. Isn't that great?
1: I'm up to a 9.9. <laughs>
2: We better stop here before we max out that meter and cause you to gush on air. That'd be, that'd be too much. Yeah, I'll just pass out. All right, folks, I hope you have a great rest of the week. We'll see you again.